Thank you to the music team for all that you do. Rich, we will miss you, but not when we're singing. I will miss you when we're singing too, but the Lord has left our music in good hands, and we're thankful. Well, please turn back in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3, as we just read a moment ago. Hebrews chapter 3. Now, if you pay attention, like I do, to the sports world, you're sure very familiar with the term GOAT. G-O-A-T means the greatest of all time. It's not, you know, Charlie Brown was the GOAT because he struck out. It's the greatest of all time. And there's a, a, a discussion in virtually every sport, who is the greatest of all time soccer player or the greatest quarterback or the greatest pitcher or whatever. Um, now, in some, support, in some sports, there's really no debate. For instance, in, uh, in uh, track and field, uh, for the 100-meter sprint and the 200-meter sprint, there's a guy named Usain Bolt from Jamaica who holds the world record and has held the world record at least in the 100 for 14 years. Um, and so it's easy to say he is the fastest man in the world. No one has ever surpassed his records. He has eight Olympic gold medals and 19 world gold medals. Uh, you could say Usain Bolt is the greatest of all time in the sprint. Now, there's other sports where there's a lot of room for discussion and very lively debate. For instance, who's the greatest basketball player of all time? There are those who would say, well, LeBron James, of course. He just surpassed Kareem Jabbar's uh, record for the most points scored in a career. So he is the highest scoring player of all time. He must be the best. Well, others would say, no, wait a minute, Michael Jordan led the Chicago Bulls in the 1990s to six world titles. And LeBron's only got four rings, so Jordan's better. And uh, somebody recently asked Michael Jordan, <clears throat> could your 1990s Bulls team beat today's LeBron James's Los Angeles Lakers teams? He said, of course we could. And he said, well, by how much? He said, two or three points. And so the inter interviewer was interested. He said, well, why only two or three points? He said, well, you've got to remember, we're all in our 60s. <laughs> but the debates rage these comparisons. Well, in the book of Hebrews, we find these comparisons taking place. But it's not simply trying to find out who is the greatest of all time. The book of Hebrews exalts the Lord Jesus Christ and said there really is no comparison. He is superior to the Old Testament prophets. He is superior to the angels. And now as we come to chapter 3, Jesus is superior to Moses. These other comparisons, there may be room for discussion. There may be room for differing opinions. But here, there is no room for discussion. Jesus, the eternal God who took to himself human flesh, he became man in the incarnation. We called it, we talked about this last week, it's called the hypostatic union, the union of uh, divine nature and human nature in one person. He's infinitely greater than the prophets. He's infinitely greater than the angels. He's infinitely greater than Moses. There is no comparison. So as we look at our text this morning, four points I would like to draw out. One is, first of all, consider Jesus, which are the first, uh, which is uh, the very first indicative, uh, the main indicative of this text. But secondly, Jesus was faithful to the Father. Thirdly, Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses. That's the comparison being drawn. And then finally, we are Jesus' house under one condition. So, first of all, consider Jesus. Verse 
1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now, before we look at Jesus, let's talk for a moment about how the writer is addressing these Hebrew believers. He calls them holy brothers. Now, if you uh, remember, we talked about what's the purpose of the book of Hebrews? What was the occasion? Why was it written? It was written to struggling Christians who were Jewish believers, who were, uh, some were in danger of becoming discouraged and wandering away. Some because of persecution or because of, uh, of, of the unpopularity among their fellow Jews of the way, as it was called in the early days, uh, were flirting even with returning to Judaism, to going back from Jesus to Moses. But the writer calls them holy brothers. And he says to these holy brothers, affirming that they really are brothers. They really are in Christ. And he calls them, don't turn back, don't, don't, don't wander away, keep pressing on. Don't, don't. He warns them in chapter 3, verse 12, about falling away from the living God. And chapter 5, he's quite blunt. He says, you have become dull of hearing. You're not mature like you need to be. You need milk when you ought to be feasting on solid food. And yet he calls them brothers, holy brothers. Brothers set apart dedicated, consecrated to the Lord. And he says, you share a heavenly calling. That is that effectual call of the Spirit of God who draws our hearts to Christ, who causes us to pass from death to life, Ephesians 2 said, so that we want nothing less, or excuse me, we want nothing more than we want to come to Jesus, to put our trust in him, to repent of sins, and pursue the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a heavenly calling. It originates in God, and it terminates in God. It takes us, uh, the call comes to us from heaven, and it takes us to heaven. So from the very outset in this text, he, uh, the writer is, is, is uh, validating their faith. So hear me, if you're a Christian this morning, if your faith, if your trust is in Jesus Christ, you are a holy brother or a holy sister. There's not substandard second-class brothers and sisters. There are some who are more uh, walking in more joy, some walk in more faithfulness, some walk in more fruitfulness, but every single Christian is a holy brother or holy sister set apart to Christ. And we share a heavenly calling. And we need to start with that sense of dignity as we work our way through this text. So with that posture in mind, consider Jesus. Now, what does that mean, consider Jesus? Jesus. The word consider means to contemplate. It means to meditate. It means to think about. It, think deeply about the Lord. But what we see here, he's not saying just, just think about Jesus in abstractions. He's not simply saying think about what makes for good Christology. What are theologically accurate ways to talk about Jesus? How do we formulate the incarnation and the hypostatic union and propitiation and all of those things that the Scriptures teach us about Jesus? That's not what the writer's talking about. I'm sure that's included, but he doesn't stop there. He wants us to dwell on the value of Christ, on the matchless worth of the Lord Jesus Christ. He calls Jesus the apostle and the high priest of our confession. And he's not talking about a confession of faith like we have the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession that's a summary of what we believe the Bible teaches. 
And we believe it's a faithful summary of what the Bible teaches about virtually all the things that matter. Not everything, obviously, but it's a faithful reflection of biblical teaching about God and about the Bible, about Christ, about the Christian life, and so forth. But that's not what he's talking about when he speaks of our confession. He's talking about our personal confession of faith in Jesus Christ. It's the living faith that we confess that we have put our trust in him. He has given us a new heart. He is our Lord. He's our shepherd. He's our king. He's our elder brother. We are his. And it's that faith we confess as we daily hold fast to him. Hebrews 4 tells us in verse 14, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, not simply holding on to the book that contains the, 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 the summary of Christian truth we believe the Bible contains, but hold fast that profession, that confession, that common uh, 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 commitment to following after, to trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Hebrews, turn with me to Hebrews 10 if you would. This word confession appears numerous times in the book of Hebrews, and I think in every case we find an association of Jesus as high priest and our confession flowing out of that. In Hebrews 10, look at verse 21. I'll read there and following. It says, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Because you have a, a faithful high priest, hold fast your confession of faith in him. He is the apostle and our high priest of our confession. Well, the word apostle means one who is sent from God as a messenger. Paul often introduces his epistles by saying, Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice what it says of Jesus here. It doesn't call Jesus an apostle. It calls him the apostle, the sent one, the emissary from God to men. And over and over, the Lord Jesus declared that he was sent by the Father, he emphasizes the message he proclaimed was one entrusted to him from his father. That takes us back to our memory verse of the month, uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Long ago, many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also he created the world. He is our high priest, but he's the apostle also. And throughout Hebrews, we find Jesus presented to us as the great high priest or as a faithful high priest. Not simply a high priest in the line of all the other high priests. They were of the uh, tribe of Levi. They were part of the Levitical priesthood. And, and uh, as Pastor Mark will cover as he works his way through uh, the book of Exodus or the Pentateuch, the priests had to be descendants of Levi. You couldn't be a descendant of anyone else and qualify to become a priest unless your name is Jesus. And Hebrews tells us that he is a priest from the order of Melchizedek. I'm not going to get into all of what that means, but we know Jesus was not of Levi. He was descendant of Judah, the line or the tribe of Judah. And so his priesthood is unique and different from that of every other priest. And 
Hebrews emphasizes that the, the sacrifices the priests made, they brought bulls and goats and lambs and, sl- and slaughtered them and put their, their blood on the Holy of Holies, on the altar and on the, on the atonement covering and the Holy of Holies. And yet, all the blood of bulls and goats can never take away a single sin from the heart of man. But the Lord Jesus shed his own blood, not only as the priest, but also the sacrifice. And his sacrifice cleansed all the sins for all the people of God for all time. We saw in chapter 2, he's called a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. He made propitiation for our sins. That means he satisfied God's wrath. He fulfilled all of the demands of divine justice that are in place because we have sinned against God. He was tempted in every way that we are. And so as redeemed saints, he still helps us. He still carries out a priestly function of interceding for us, of mediating for us, for helping us in our times of need. And he's full of mercy and compassion. He understands, he empathizes or sympathizes with that which troubles your heart and your life. So with those things in mind, who Jesus is, as the apostle and high priest of our confession, he says, consider the matchless worth of Jesus. There's none like him. He's superior to the angels. He's superior to Moses, which we're going to look at more in a moment. And as we go further in the book, superior to every human high priest who goes, who's gone before. But secondly, so Jesus, we're, we're told, consider Jesus, but he says, Jesus was faithful to the Father. He was, verse 2, faithful to him who appointed him just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Again, he was called an apostle. That means he was given a message from the Father to to declare to us. And over and over, Jesus emphasized that. In John 15, verse 15, he says to his disciples, I've called you friends. For all that I've heard from my Father, I've made known to you. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus goes to the synagogue in Nazareth and he is uh, invited to read from the Scriptures. And so he takes the Isaiah scroll and he, he turns. They didn't, have, they didn't have chapter numbers then, but we know it's Isaiah 61. And he reads these words, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll and he handed it back to the... Uh, Levite, or the attendant, and then he sat down, and every eye was on Jesus. What's he going to say next? And Jesus said, today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Basically, Jesus said, Isaiah was talking about me. I am that apostle. I am that sent one. I am the one proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. So Jesus lived his life on this earth throughout his ministry. He lived with a keen sense. He was sent by his father to deliver a very particular message. And he was faithful to preach that good news that was entrusted to him. He was also faithful as a high priest. He was sent here to redeem us from our sins. And he was faithful to that charge. He perfectly obeyed the law that you and I have Disobeyed. We have broken God's law over and over and over again. But Jesus perfectly obeyed the law, so he had no sin of his own that needed to be paid for. He achieved a perfect human righteousness. 
And so he was qualified to pay for our sins. And because he is not only man, but also God, his death, his sacrifice had infinite value to pay for all of the sins of all of his people for all time. When he was hanging on the cross, our Lord said, it is finished, meaning the price was fully paid. The transaction is complete. God's wrath has been fully satisfied. All the, divine, uh, all the demands of divine justice have been fully met. Redemption from sin has been accomplished. Death has been defeated. So you and I can be freely and fully forgiven. It's finished. My favorite summary of the gospel is in 2 Corinthians 5.21, which says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was faithful to the Father who appointed him as the apostle and high priest of our confession. But thirdly, Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses. Now, I don't want to minimize the, the, the importance of Moses. And Hebrews does not minimize the importance of Moses. He was faithful, we read in verse 2, in all of God's house. Now, if we're going to appreciate this comparison between Jesus and Moses, we need to consider the importance, or we might say the worth, of Moses. He was not some insignificant fellow mentioned once or twice in the Old Testament. In Numbers 12, God is speaking of Moses. He said that God declared he had spoke through, spoken through other prophets, through dreams and visions and, and, and mysteries. But he says, not so with my servant Moses. He's faithful in all my house, which is, I believe, the writer of Hebrews is drawing from there. And he says, with him I speak mouth to mouth. In other words, face to face. Moses received direct revelation from God in a manner more clear more direct than any who had gone before or after until the Lord Jesus. Now, for us, most of us Gentile believers living in the United States in 2023, it'd be very difficult for us to appreciate the role of Moses and the, the worth or the, 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 the reputation of Moses that Jewish Believers, not just Jews, but Jewish believers would hold. It's difficult for us to appreciate just how powerful and significant this comparison is. Uh, step back a minute. Every child knows the father of our country is George Washington, right? And we think George Washington's important, but that's only political. That's only historical. It's got nothing to do with our faith. It's got nothing to do with how we come to God. Uh, we don't have a Moses figure in our history in our collective psyche, as it were, the way the Jews did. And so, we have to, to, to put ourselves into that type of thinking a bit, because Moses was not simply a political liberator. He did. He was used of God to liberate the Hebrews from slavery in Egypt, absolutely, but he was far more. He spoke with God face to face. He received and he wrote down the law of God, what we call the, the Pentateuch or the Torah. One writer says the Torah contains the theological foundations of the entire Bible. All that we believe is based or introduced, the foundation was laid by what Moses wrote. So, in that sense, Moses holds a unique place in biblical revelation. 
He's the first and really the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets. Abraham was their father, held in high regard, venerated. David was their greatest king, a hero to the Jewish people. But Moses held a unique place in their hearts. There was none like Moses. Richard Brooks in his commentary said, in the Old Testament times, no one was regarded more highly than Moses. He was worthy of honor and admiration in the hearts and the minds of the Jewish people, and that includes Jewish Christians. It includes us. Moses is worthy of our admiration, our affection, our appreciation, but not our trust and not our worship. Because as worthy as Moses was, Jesus is infinitely more worthy. However faithful Moses was, Jesus was faithful to something far more significant and far more difficult. However worthy Moses was of any kind of commendation, Jesus is infinitely more worthy. You remember in the introduction, I, 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 I spoke about um, these comparisons. Who is the greatest of all time? And we can argue those things for hours. Now, there's a darker side to comparisons. We tend to compare ourselves to other people. I've said before, if you look low enough, you can always find somebody to make you look good. If you look high enough, you can always, make, you can always find somebody to make you despair and feel discouraged. But the reality is we often compare ourselves to other people in an effort to determine or discover our worth. For instance, am I as good at my job as my competition? Do I make as much money as that guy over there? Am I as good a mother or father as this other Christian in my church? Am I as good a musician as this other musician? When I get up to play or sing, do people appreciate my singing as much as this other person's or my playing or whatever? Am I as attractive as this other person over there? I've told that as men, we don't think about that as much, but as women, that's a big thing all the time. Uh, I'm not a woman, so I'm not really sure, but anyhow, am I as smart or am I as strong or am I as gifted or am I as effective? And we all do it. Preachers do it. We meet another preacher. So, so how big is your church? I'm trying to determine if I'm as effective as a preacher as the next guy. We all do it. We, we're looking to figure out, do I have worth or not? Am I on the right track or not? We're trying to determine our value. That's one of the negative influences of social media is right here. Teens, please listen to me. Please listen. This is critically important. Social media destroys the hearts of so many young people because nobody gets, or very few people get on social media and talk about what they're struggling with. We put forward these imaginary or these pretended uh, 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 airbrushed impressions of ourselves so that people will think we're wonderful. And we determine our worth by how many followers we have on Facebook or Instagram or how many likes we get for a particular post on Snapchat, and that is somehow what determines our worth. And we look at the the comments other people say, and if they're for us, we feel good about ourselves, and if they're against us, we feel deflated or defeated. We are seeking to determine our worth by what people who barely know us or people who never even have met us 
are indicating through the impersonal world of social media. It is toxic. Let me say that again. It's toxic. Don't fall into that trap. And if you're in it, please get mom and dad or your pastor or somebody to help you get out. You don't determine your worth by what somebody else thinks of you. Particularly when everybody on social media, virtually everybody, is pretending anyway. It's not very real. And those who have lots and lots of followers, they have this false sense of significance. I'm important because I have 347,295 followers and they all like me. That makes me worth something. Really? Maybe you're just good at making a good impression that may or may not be accurate. So we, don't, we should never dis- compare ourselves to other people in order to discover our worth. That's a, that's a zero-sum game. It's a dead end, all right? Hebrews does compare Jesus to Moses, not to discover worth, but to, de- to reveal the worth of the Lord Jesus, to demonstrate his matchless worth. Jesus holds Moses up, or excuse me, the writer of Hebrews holds up Moses, and he holds up Jesus and says, there really is no comparison at all. And throughout the book of Hebrews, we see this argument. Jesus is superior to the angels. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to the Levitical priesthood, uh, to anyone and anything that you might be drawn to. Jesus is superior. Anything competing for your affections cannot come close to comparing with Jesus. Now, let's look. Let's, Let's dive in a little bit to this argument that is put forward here. He speaks in, uh, in verse 2, he says, Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house, has more honor than the house itself, for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. The builder of the house is worth more glory than the house itself. There's a very famous architect, he, was born, he, he grew up in Charleston, I don't know if he's born there, named Robert Mills, born in the late, mid-late 1700s, lived into the 1800s. He's considered America's first American-born architect. He designed the Washington Monument, the U.S. Treasury Building, numerous government buildings in Washington, D.C., courthouses in small and large cities all over the world, all over the country, rather. He designed many, many churches, including the church I grew up in, First Baptist Church of Charleston. Not the church itself, he designed their building, which is there to this day and beautiful. Robert Mills was a great architect. And we look at these buildings and go, wow, who did this? He's worthy of more honor than the buildings that he built, however magnificent they may be. A few weeks ago, my wife and my daughter went to a concert at the Peace Center. Uh, the, the violin soloist was a man named Joshua Bell. You may not recognize his name, but Joshua Bell is regarded as the best violinist of his generation in the entire world. Now, maybe not the greatest of all time, but the best today of his age and generation. And he was playing Beethoven. And Joshua Bell played Beethoven masterfully. Let's draw a distinction here. He performed Beethoven. Beethoven composed what Josh Bell performed and which countless other artists have performed for over 200 years. And 100 years from now, if Jesus tarries, people will still be playing Beethoven and they won't know who Joshua Bell was. The composer is of infinite more worth in that sense than the artist who plays him. 
You get my point. Moses was performing, as it were, that which God entrusted to him. He was a servant in the house. Jesus built the house. He is the son over the house. Moses was great. He led the Israelites out of bondage in Egypt through the wilderness all the way to the promised land. He himself was not able to go in, but he led them to the promised land. He rescued them from slavery and delivered them over to freedom. But what, what Moses did in that Exodus event is a type, it's a shadow, it's a reflection, it's a picture of what was to come, of the redemption that was provided in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus redeemed us from our bondage to sin and to death. And that deliverance Moses accomplished for his people was great, but the deliverance Jesus has accomplished for us is infinitely greater. The deliverance Moses led the people of God to points forward to that which we receive from the Lord Jesus Christ. He was, Moses was a faithful servant in God's house, but Jesus was faithful over God's house as the son, as the heir of all things, as the builder we see, which again is uh, another affirmation of the deity of Jesus Christ because it says God is the one who built the house and all things. Now, the writer could have simply said, Moses was a man, Jesus is God, end of story, and that would be true. But he wants to draw us in and and recognize how it is that Jesus is so much greater, even than Moses. Moses testified of those things that would be spoken later. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that Moses was speaking about. All that the Old Testament prophets were speaking about. As he said in in quoting Isaiah 61, this day it's been fulfilled in your very presence. Moses was the messenger. Jesus was the message. Brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian, we are his house, the house he built under one condition. Let's look first of all in verse 6. Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence in our boasting in our hope. So let's look at this declaration first. We are his house. Turn with me, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 2. The, the scriptures often speak of us, the church, as the household of God. Paul does it in very uh, descriptive terms in Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 19. Verse 19 So then you're no longer citizens, or excuse me, no longer strangers and aliens but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. But notice he kind of morphs from members of the house to being the house itself. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. He starts off by saying we're the household, we're the inhabitants of the house, and then he says you are the house. It speaks of the fact that we belong. We're, we're members of God's family. We're, we're members of one another. We are a holy temple. We're the household of God and a holy temple in the Lord. We are a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. We're his house. Christian, understand Moses served faithfully in the house. I trust that you and I are serving faithfully in the house. Jesus is the son over the house, and he made the house. 
Christian, you are a holy brother and sister. You share a heavenly calling to be part of that house. And together we come together and we're being built together as this temple in which God dwells. It's important that you and I don't lose sight of who we are in Jesus Christ. Our worth is not based on how many followers we have on Facebook or how many likes we get on Instagram or Snapchat. Our worth is based on who we are in Christ. Are we part of the house? There's dignity. There's stability and security when we understand who we are in Christ. Our worth is derived from him. Not anything we might be able to do. But I want you to see there's this important condition here. If we hold fast. And he takes us back to the very purpose that the whole epistle was written. And that is to urge believers to hold fast, to persevere to the very end. If you recall when we studied through the book of Revelation, we talked about the three great dangers that we face in this world. One is persecution symbolized by the beast persecuting the saints. One is Deception symbolized by the false prophet, breathing out lies, deceiving all who will listen. And one is seduction symbolized by the harlot, Babylon, seducing with the pleasures and the uh, profits and the enticements of this world. And we can be destroyed by anyone, by persecution or by deception or by seduction unless we hold fast because each of these influences is aiming for your heart it's aiming to draw you away to drive you away from your trust and your position in Christ and there were Jewish believers that were addressed here because they were feeling this tug to return to Judaism some because of opposition they were receiving it's just more comfortable it's safer there Uh, Some were being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, but some were getting confused by a misunderstanding of the gospel. And maybe Moses was really who we should be holding up. You might say they they were feeling more drawn to Moses than to Christ. And all of these things are foolish. It's like the writer is saying, why would you turn back to a law that could never save you in the first place? So we're his house if we hold fast. Now, you might say, no, no, wait a minute, Pastor Jamie. Why are we finding this condition here? Why are we finding this affirmation, we are his house if we hold fast? Does that mean that a real Christian could actually let go and fall away and be lost forever? Now, the clear teaching of Scripture is that a genuine Christian cannot lose his salvation. And any time you come across a, a, a text that seems somewhat unclear, in such matters, we have to look at the texts that are abundantly clear. And we interpret that which is unclear in light of that which is clear. And the clear affirmation over and over again is that he lays hold of us and we will never perish. Jesus, I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep, they know me. I hold them in my hand and no one can snatch them out of my hand. And my father is greater uh, than all and no one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. And over and over we find these affirmations. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. So why these warnings? And we find them throughout Hebrews. Warnings against wandering away, against falling away, against returning to the law. The reality is a genuine Christian may stumble 
and fall, but the Lord will raise him up. Uh, a, a genuine sheep may wander off, but the good shepherd will go and get that sheep and bring him back. But you do not find anywhere in Scripture saying, don't worry about it, it's okay to wander off because the shepherd will come after you. It always says, guard your heart, hold fast your confession, persevere, endure, don't look back. Put your hand to the plow and don't let go. The message is ever to persevere. And we find these sober warnings. Turn, turn with me to Hebrews 6. There's this sober warning to Christians who, or professed Christians who actually do fall away. I say professed Christians. It's important we recognize that. In Hebrews 6, verse 4, he says, It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding up Him up to contempt. And then he drops down in verse 9. He, he talks about briars and thorns and so forth. And he says in verse 9, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Now, if you read 4 through 6 without looking at verse 9, you might say, that sounds like he's describing real Christians here. And yet we come to verse 9, and he says, we're convinced that things that actually accompany salvation are yours, that may, that, which means what happens in 4 through 6 isn't necessarily accompanying salvation. It could simply be the experience of Judas Iscariot, who certainly looked like he was a follower of Christ. He was one of the 12 original disciples and yet Jesus doesn't say he fell away and departed from the faith. He says he was a demon or a devil from the very beginning. And on that last day in Matthew 7, Jesus says, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we do these miraculous things? We perform miracles and we, we cast out demons in your name and we, 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 we prophesied. And Jesus says on that day, I will declare to them, depart from me. Not I used to know you, but you fell away. I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. Your life didn't change. You didn't bring forth the fruits of repentance. You didn't endure to the very end. And the reason those happened, even though you might have followed for a time or you might have kept up appearances, even maybe throughout your entire lifetime, hear me, you didn't know me. And I didn't know you. It's a sober warning for every person who names the name of Christ. Make sure you're in Christ. Why do we find these warnings in our New Testament? Why are they there? Because real Christians will hear those warnings and will heed those warnings and will hold fast. That's part of the means God uses to keep us in Christ. Not to scare us, but to help us to take seriously that which truly matters. The author of Hebrews is not simply uh, interested in helping us to recite sound theology. He, yeah, he wants us to inform our minds. He wants us to believe all the right things about Jesus. We, he wants us to understand that Jesus is superior to Moses and to the angels and the prophets. But he also wants to engage our affections. He wants our hearts fixed firmly and fully on Jesus Christ. And that's why he speaks of holding on to our confidence and our boasting in hope. These truths are not simply to ensure that you and I remain orthodox. Being orthodox is important. In other words, holding fast to the truth. We want to be faithful to sound theology, but we want these glorious truths to be glorious in our own hearts. Hear me. It's not enough to recite the truth. 
We need to delight in the truth. We want the, the truth that Jesus is our propitiation, that he's our great high priest. We want that to inspire confidence in us so that we approach boldly his throne of grace. Christians, too often we fail to appreciate what a great Savior we have. What a sympathetic and faithful high priest we have. What a, a faithful high priest who understands and sympathizes with the struggles you go through. We aren't gripped with that reality to the extent we should be. And so we don't enjoy the kind of confidence that is our birthright in Jesus Christ. We recite the truths, but our hearts aren't gripped by those truths. And so he says, hold fast, not just to the truth, but to the confidence that truth should inspire. Hold fast to that confidence and don't let go. Now, what's the significance of this second phrase? Hold fast to your confidence and the boasting in our hope. Now, the word hope in, appears numerous times in, in Hebrews, and it's, uh, it doesn't mean I hope so with some kind of doubt. You know, I hope, I, uh, I hope my team wins, or I hope I get this raise, or I hope I get accepted into that school or whatever. I hope when I propose, the girl says yes. Uh, it's a confident expectation. God has made a promise, and my hope is built on that promise, and I'm sure he will come through because of God who made the promise. That's what biblical hope means. And Hebrews speaks of this hope as an anchor of our souls. Hebrews 6, 19, we have this hope as a sure and steady anchor for the soul, a hope that enters into the holy place behind the curtain, speaking of the high priest going into the holy of holies. We're invited now to go there because Jesus has led the way and invited us in. It's a confidence to enjoy intimate communion with God to receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. But what does it mean to boast in that hope? The word boasting, it's, it's, it's the basis of our glorying. This is what I boast about. You ever been to the gym or on an athletic field and you see these guys strutting because they're just, I mean, they are ripped and they know it. And it's their boast. I am confident in this place because I am ripped. Take one of those guys and you put them in an art museum and they're lost. <laughs> they don't know what's going on. Their confidence is rooted in something. Their boast. What's our confidence rooted in? It's in Christ. It's in the hope that he has given us. We don't boast in how many followers we might have on Facebook. We don't, we don't find significance in how many likes we might get on Instagram. We don't base our value or our significance on the size of our salary or of our investment portfolio. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. Our sole basis for confidence, for any real sense of worth, is that we are his house. We're his people. We're his sheep. We're his beloved. That is our source of value. That is that which we should treasure that neither moth can rust or rust could destroy and the thieves could never break in or steal. And this confidence, this boasting in our hope is what is going to keep us from wandering away, treasuring that which matters the most. Why would we leave? Why would we ever wander away from that which gives ultimate satisfaction and security and stability and joy to my soul? So the greatest protection for our hearts. Hebrews 3 warns against wandering away from the living God. The greatest protection is being firmly convinced of the matchless worth of Jesus Christ. 
It's your heart convinced that he alone is worthy of your allegiance. He alone is worthy of your devotion and your obedience. He alone is worthy of your worship. And he alone can help you when you need it the most. We ought to appreciate what Moses accomplished for the people of God in the house of God. Now, we, we probably can't fully appreciate the, the place that Moses held in the hearts of Jewish believers in the first century. But however great Moses' accomplishes, accomplishments might have been, and they were great, Je what Jesus accomplishes is infinitely greater. However worthy Moses was of honor that was given to him, Jesus is infinitely worthy of more glory and more honor. So in just a moment, we're going to approach the Lord's table. I want to ask you or encourage you, consider Jesus. Think deeply on the truths that we've been talking about, about Jesus Christ, his deity, his humanity in the incarnation, his suffering, his willingness to suffer so that he might sympathize with what we go through, his faithfulness, his matchless worth. Think about those things deeply. Meditate on them. Consider them. Think about that intimate and that personal care he has for every single member of his house. So consider Jesus in such a way that your heart is drawn to him more and more fully. Consider Jesus so your heart won't be drawn away to anything else because he is alone worthy of my obedience, of my affection, of my trust. And secondly, hold fast to your confidence in the Lord Jesus. And the warning isn't simply hold fast so something terrible won't happen. You think about if you're walking down the street in a very, very crowded city, ladies, you probably hold your purse just a little bit tighter, right? Guys, you, you, you button that button on the back of your pants where your wallet is because you want to make sure nobody relieves you of your wallet, of your belongings. It's not because you're afraid you'll get punished if you lose it. It's because what's in there is valuable, and you want to protect it. It serves you well. well what's in my wallet is it's usually pretty empty, but you get the point. It's not a negative motivation. Hold on so something terrible doesn't happen. It's hold on because what you're holding to is valuable. It's important. How much more should we hold fast to Jesus Christ? He is infinitely more valuable, infinitely more precious, infinitely more beneficial than these worldly things, these treasures that moth and rust can destroy, that thieves can break in and steal. Your confidence in him is precious beyond all things, so hold fast to Jesus. He is worthy. He alone is worthy of your trust.